Is your heart like a stone this morning? Hard on the outside, hard on the inside. Your heart has never felt soft. Perhaps it hasn't felt soft in a long time. Is your heart like a, a piece of bread? Soft on the inside, but it's been getting tough on the outside as of recent. Or is your heart like a sponge this morning, very tender? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need to sense our need for you this morning. And for sure in a room this size with all of us in the weeks that we've gone through, perhaps the years that we've gone through, perhaps just visiting for the first time this morning or being here Sunday after Sunday continually for the majority of our life for anyone in between, visitors, members, we are humans, we are your creations and we have hearts and minds and ones that can either be as hard as stone to you, ones that can be like uh, 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 bread that is crusty on the outside, was soft in the inside, but needs to be broken open. Or perhaps we're very tender, wanting to hear your voice this morning, needing to hear your voice this morning. God, what I ask is that we would have open hearts, including myself as the preacher this morning, to hear your word, God, just as the church of Laodicea heard your word through the reading of this letter to them. Centuries ago, God, we read it this morning and ask Jesus that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us no matter where our hearts are, God. The fact is, we believe that your spirit, no matter where our hearts are, can speak to us, can soften what is hard, can care for what is soft and needs your healing touch. Whatever is needed, God, by the body here collectively this morning and by us individually, Lord God, we pray, would you be the doctor? Would you be the healer? Would you be the, the, um, the loving, tough love Savior and Lord? Would you be all these things that you are to us this morning as we hear your word? And we pray that the main teacher, your Holy Spirit, the Holy Counselor would speak to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, I was never a lifeguard, but I love water. I love water. I love swimming. I love going to the ocean. Yesterday, me and my family were at um, Thorndale uh, at the beach there, and it was pretty wavy. And there was uh, not a riptide, but there was a heavy current coming from the left. If you've been to Thorndale, they have kind of this, uh, a bunch of rocks that creates a little bit of a gap, and then you have the open water. And you had powerful water coming from this way and powerful water coming from this way. I mean, we were loving it. There was a yellow flag up there. We were loving it because we were diving in the, the, the water and we were diving in the waves and my boys were loving it. But you know how water can get dangerous real quickly. And I've never been a lifeguard, but I had two friends that were lifeguards up at Loyola Beach here in Chicago uh, for years. And one thing that they always told me, and they weren't saying it in a negative way, but they said, if somebody is struggling, please let it be a child because we can rescue a child. The child knows its need. A child knows how to cling to and rest when we grab them. And then they would tell other stories about men, especially men, grown men, businessmen that had too much liquor or they got too proud and they would jump in the water and they would start to swim. And when they would try to save them, 
They were the most pitiable, the most, the hardest to save. Because what would happen? They would go in there trying to save these grown men who seem, well, they're grown men. They're capable, right? They have their clothes on. They have years of experience. And yet they were the hardest to save because they couldn't admit their what need. They couldn't see their state. They were grown. They were experienced. But they couldn't see the need in the present moment for the need for the lifeguard who was more experienced of better mind to save them from the waves. And these are the people that my friends, as lifeguard says, man, when that would happen in the water, they feared for their own life. Would this grown man take me down in the waves? Would there be a point that I would need to let him go because I need to save myself? This is the state of the church of Laodicea. At the point of the great lifeguard, the most experienced lifeguard, the one that allowed himself, if I can borrow the metaphor from the cross, to drown so that we would have life. He knew the danger of life. He knew the danger of death. And he's looking at Laodicea and he says, you are fighting me. You are so drunk on your pride. You're so drunk on your self-sufficiency that you are fighting me. And I am trying to hold you close and rescue you to show you the state that you are in. This is the church of Laodicea. You see, self-sufficiency produces our weakest and most pitiable state. Let me say that one more time. Us thinking we can do this, a self-made man, a self-made woman, independent America, I can do this, I can run my life, is actually the poorest, most pitiable, and most dangerous place for a Christian to be. On the other hand, we are designed by Jesus for dependence, for devotion to him. And this is the best of all, for delight in him, to dine with him, as he says in this passage. So let me just lay that table out just a little bit uh, one more time, is that self-sufficiency, us trying to do things on our own, us getting to the place where we can handle our life is actually a very dangerous spiritual place to be and, and and let's 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 paint this holistically it's just a dangerous place to be whether you're wealthy and prideful whether you're poor economically and prideful it's all the same if you're prideful and you don't sense your need for the great lifeguard right or the great coach or whatever metaphor you want to borrow for Jesus it's a very dangerous pl- place to be it's a pitiable place to be like a grown man fighting the lifeguard that's trying to save him from the waves. Now let me give you a, a quick background with Laodicea. See, Laodicea was a city. It's the seventh of the churches, right? It's the seventh of the churches. And um, it is fierce in the, the words that Jesus brings to this church, as we just heard. Why was it fierce? Is because they basically said, I do not need you, Jesus. With their life and with their works, they said, I do not need you. What was the background to this? Laodicea was wealthy. Can wealthy people come to know Christ? Praise God, of course they can. But we all know that when we are wealthy in an area, it can easily become our crutch. It can easily become our strength. 
It is the thing that is lauded and applauded in our country is wealth, 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 wealth. You got to make it. You got to grow from poor to middle class to rich. You got to be sustaining. You got to get your 401k. You got to plan for the next 45 years. Is that what Jesus ever says? I'm sorry. Maybe that's pushing on a, a button, right? Jesus says to depend on him, right? But it, it, the, 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 the bell rings true here is that we live in a culture that is very similar to Laodicea, very wealthy. And if you're not wealthy, they say you got to go get your wealth. You got to set up your camp. Some things that aren't intrinsically bad in and of themselves. Is wealth bad? It's not bell, bad, but it's bad when it becomes our what? Source of strength. When it becomes our source of strength. And it blinds us to our need. And this is what happened in Laodicea. Now, this is the irony. Laodicea was between, it was in a tri-city setup, right? So you had the city of Colossia, the city of Heropolis, both cities that were close to Laodicea. Laodicea was the most important. Laodicea had uh, a medical center that was amazing. Laodicea had wealth. Laodicea produced the finest Vogue clothes ever. It produced this thing called black wool. And so it was known as the cream of the crop. Laodicea was the cream of the crop of culture, just like our great America, right? The cream of the crop of historical culture, one of the richest empires in the world and all of history, the cream of the crop. And yet this was what was so ironic. They didn't have basic drinking water. They had everything. But they couldn't lock down a clean water source. And so the source of water that they would get from one side would come in lukewarm. It was fresh where it came from. It was refreshing to the soul. It was clean. By the time it came from the pipes to their city, it was lukewarm. It was putrid. If you drank it, it would make you throw up. You would spit it out of your mouth or you would throw up because that's the, the minerals that were in it. And from the other side, it came from springs, from Heropolis. And it would grab those minerals, and by the time it got to the city, it had no healing components. It wasn't hot. It was full of minerals, and once again, it would make you throw up. It wasn't drinkable. And so you had the cream of the crop of the city. You had the wealthy, the self-made man kind of city that was heralded, right? Even to the point that when it had an earthquake, the Roman Empire extended money to rebuild it, and they said, nah, we're straight. We don't need your money. We'll rebuild it ourselves." Once again, qualities that are admirable, but the pride behind them wasn't. There was a pride in this city and there was a pride in this church. Geographically, it was, it was the center of trade route, so it knew that it could make money. It knew it had affluence. The mentality was self-sufficient, resource, prideful, educated, but it lost its sight of its most basic need. Spiritually, this church, specifically to the church of Laodicea, was lukewarm, useless, and check this out, disgusting to Jesus. Loved by Jesus, as we'll see, but the taste of their works and their life and their testimony, it was disgusting to Jesus. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? where you could candidly and honestly say, man, God, the way I feel divided this week or this month or this season of my life where I am saying with my mouth I love Jesus, but my life is showing a disgusting taste, a disgusting display. I'll be the first to raise my hand. 
you walk with Jesus long enough, you can find that we are prone to go counter to our new created design and go back to the old man or the old woman. Is this true? And so I just want to stop here and say the Laodicean church was the church. They were a group of people that confessed Jesus as Lord, knew Jesus as Lord, and were working in the Lord's name in some capacity. And Jesus says, man, I know who you are. I know your works, but they're disgusting to me. So there is a capacity, and it must be said because we see it right here. There's a capacity for nominal, wealthy, prideful Christians to have other loves and other strengths and be disgusting to their Lord. Still be loved by the Lord, as we will see, but disgusting to the Lord. The way we live our life, the way we work matters. The spring, if I can borrow the water term, really matters. It matters where the water from your life flows. And it produces a taste. Now let's read really quickly in um, verse 14, if you could join me and see this. We're going to divide this prophetic message. That all of these messages from the church came from the source behind the prophetic word. You don't, you never have a prophetic word unless Jesus is the one propelling it. Jesus is the prophetic word. He's the one that has the authority to speak into our lives. I love it. Um, yesterday my, my two year old, or I'm sorry, my three year old, Judah, (laughs) I was changing him. You know, he's worried about, you know, who can see him, who cannot see him as he dresses. And he says, but God can see all my parts, can't he, Poppy? I say he can. He'll see right through you, way past your outside parts, right into your heart. And that's where Jesus is the prophetic word. We can sit in these pews. We can sit in these these chairs. And that's why we have to ask ourselves, do we sense a need? Do we sense a want for Jesus to speak in our life? Because it matters. He's the prophetic word that speaks directly to where our heart is. And he does things, as we will see. There's a lot of verbs in this passage of what he will do, what he wants to do in our life. For the Laodiceans, for us as individuals, and for us collectively as the family at Edgewater. In verse 14 it says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, capital A, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, The beginning of God's creation. One more time. These things describe Jesus, the prophetic word, the one that is speaking what we're about to go into. The words of the amen. Amen means so be it. It's like a stamp. What is said is stamped. Jesus doesn't play in the maybe. Jesus doesn't play in the, ah, we're kind of in a gray area. What he says is true. We see that. He's the faithful and true witness. None of us can claim that title here. I'm never a faithful and true witness 100% of the time for Jesus ever. Jesus is always true. He's always the true witness, and his words are always true. We got to approach this text in that way, and I want to pause to say, how are you seeing Jesus this morning? Is he the one that can prophetically look into your life with love and with rebuke, Prophetically look into this church and say, here in the now, Edgewater, this is where you are at. These are the things that I love. These are the things that I do not love. Let's correct these things by my love. This is who we're, if I could use the word, dealing with this morning. Jesus, the resurrected one. 
Jesus, the one that is the lifeguard that went through the drowning and rose from the grave to look at us and say to us, if we're that prideful businessman drowning in the water at Loyola Beach, hey, listen, you need a pause and you need to hear these words so that you do not get spewed out of my mouth, so that you do not shipwreck your life. He knows because he's been there. The beginning of God's creation. The letter of Colossians, a side note, the letter of Colossians was exhorted to be read at this church. And in Colossians 1, it's a famous passage about Jesus Christ. There's a phrase that always captivated my attention. Jesus Christ is the one that what? Holds all things together. Jesus Christ is the one that holds all things together. I could say, and scholars say this too, that basically 100% uh, uh, with assuredness that this church had read Colossians many times, had copied it down, and they knew that Jesus Christ was the one that holds all things together, and he was the one that was deeply needed for the Christian walk. He was the authority. Now, this was a unique, uh, this is a unique environment. I want you to let your imagination travel here. Um, I was trying to uh, imagine giving this word to this church, uh, and I don't want to place everything economically, but when you're poor economically, it's not guaranteed but when you're poor economically, or at least you sense your need economically, you're prone to be a little bit more open to financial advice or financial gifts. You, you don't really have the pride of this. Like, no, I don't, I don't need what you have, right? When I think about this audience that was very wealthy, um, I, I think, were they ready to hear that there was a higher authority above them to receive this word? And that's what Jesus is establishing here. He's saying, I don't care how much you got in the bank. I don't care what you sell in the marketplace. I don't care how many connections you have. I don't care what your family name brings into it. When I look at you, you are naked and you are vulnerable. I see exactly who you are to the very core of you. And I wonder what a wealthy crowd would have said to that. <laughs> I wonder what we would say to it. He goes on in verse 15. Please follow along with me. You know, we're so prone to forget our need for him. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot, just like the pipelines of water coming into this city. Would you that you either be hot or cold or cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And, and right here, please take note. I need nothing. For you say, this is Jesus' assessment of them, for you say of yourselves, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I want to pause there. See, we are designed for dependence and not self-sufficiency. We're designed by this creator who is the beginning of creation. For dependence. What do we hear preached to us constantly in our life growing up, especially in America? Community? Ah. Uh, dependence on other people? Family? Ah, uh, no. Independence, right? 
We are the nation of independence. Like I said, intrinsically not bad things, right? But we are taught over and over to establish our life and be be on our own, independently, needing nothing from anyone, right? It's in our culture. It's in our branding. It's in the commercials, right? Do your life. Do your life. Invent yourself. Be your God. Make your way. This is not Jesus' way. This is the biggest condemning thing he says. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Those three words, I need nothing. Have you been in those places on a Monday night, on a Wednesday morning, on a Saturday evening, where you sense the need deep down inside of you like, man, I can feel the pride of how I'm interacting with Jesus. When he beckons me to pray, I don't need to pray. When he calls me away from entertainment to hear the cleaning words of his word, uh, I'll do this for now. Let me run my life. Have you ever been there? Once again, I raise two hands. I've been there and I know my heart is prone to slide down that slope. We all are. We have a heart like the Laodiceans that when things go well, it is very easy to be tempted to forgetting God. Does anybody know this here? I'm pretty sure if we're honest with ourselves, we can line up a testimony and say, man, a week ago, two years ago, five years ago, this is what it was. I want to pause here to say how real this gets. When I was in the pew and uh, I just had this moment actually a block away because I was ordering some Mexican food the other day by Diamante Azul. Good spot if you want to get some Mexican. The neighborhood has changed a lot, but I'll say this. When I go past corners in the neighborhood that I grew up, I'm reminded of God's grace for me. I really am. It was a Friday night when I was 15 years old. And God is almost uh, candidly and abruptly and forcefully talked to the Laodiceans here. God woke me up when I was 15. See, I was in these church pews. Many of you saw me. Snotty-nosed 15-year-old, big head, prideful. That was me. Hearing the word of God preached, seeing the love of God lived out in Edgewater, and yet all the young people I grew up with outside of Edgewater were all getting into two different realms. It was kind of like this hip-hop party realm, and it involved a lot of good things mixed in with a lot of really destructive things. And then there was a lot of other guys I grew up with that they just went toward gangbanging, drug dealing. And so one night at 15, I was on this seesaw. Who do I live for? Jesus Christ to myself. Who do I live for? Jesus Christ to myself. And the slippery slide, the seesaw, kept pulling me toward what I wanted deep in my heart, which was all the things I saw in the world. A short synopsis was that one Friday night when I was coming here to play basketball downstairs, very prideful. I was walking about two blocks this way toward the church. And my father came back, came by in a van, and he called out to me. He said, why don't you get in the car? It's Friday night. Things are a little bit hot on Clark Street, and I'll take you to the church. And in my pride, in the same way that that businessman fought against the lifeguard, I said, no, no, I got this. I got this. I got this. I, I got this. This is my neighborhood. I know this neighborhood. I know all the guys. I argued with him for a little while, finally got in the car. Fifteen seconds later, an acquaintance of mine, little clown, was killed on the corner right in front of where Diamante Azul is right now. 
This is the most important part, though. I started thinking. I started to sense what we're about to read. The knocking of Jesus upon my life. And he was basically saying the same thing that he was saying to Laodicea and Esteban. You're prideful. You never stop to listen because you always want to talk. You always want to show your accolades or show yourself stronger. But you need to sit down and listen. My father came that night after I came to the church about three hours later and he did a funny thing. He led me up this block right here. And he didn't say one word to me. My father's a good life teacher. He led me up in silence to that corner. And at that time, it was a Latin King neighborhood. And uh, a lot of my guys, there was about 50 guys in a corner. They were all in a vigilia or like a prayer vigil, not a prayer to Christ, obviously. Uh, And there was candles out. And my father took me up there. He didn't say one word to me. He pointed down at the ground and he said everything to me. It was a wake up call. It's like, if this is the life you want, the self-run life, this is where it'll lead to. And God started knocking on my heart, knocking on my heart and saying, will you be mine? Are you going to try to run your own life? It was God's grace to me. It was a wake up call. The Laodiceans thought they were honorable. What does Christ call them? Wretched. You're wretched. He thought they were esteemed. They thought they were esteemed. They were pitiable. The Laodicean church had self-made wealth, and yet they were poor. They thought they were progressive and educated, and Jesus says, you're blind. Why? Because we need nothing. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, Let me counsel you on some things. If you're hearing my voice, let me counsel you on some things. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold. Follow along, please. Verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold. Why did that speak to them? Because most of them were merchants or bankers. Merchants or bankers. He's like, no, let me tell you the spiritual economics in my kingdom. Let me tell you what I value. Let me tell you the transactions I value, Jesus says. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Specifically, I believe he's talking about trials there, sacrifice. Don't buy comfort, buy sacrifice, because I value that. I value trials. I value suffering for my name. I value a witness that goes out for Jesus' name and all, not all your brands and your companies and your banks, but one that will suffer. The greatest brand upon you will be my name. Buy that. He goes on to continue to say, so that you may be rich. You buy that, you'll be rich. He goes on to say, and buy white garments, which always is talking about character, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. I pretty much believe anybody in this church will be like, come on, Jesus, we're not naked. We have the best clothes. We're Vogue. We're the trendsetters. We're applauded. We're renowned for our clothes. He says, you're naked. You're shameful. You don't have anything. Buy from me character that's godly, because that's what I value. I see way past your clothes. I see way past your appearance. Like the church of Sardis, I see way past your reputation. Your spiritual reputation and clothes, they mean nothing to me. Let me see your character, your godly character. Let me see your character when no one's around. Let me see your character when there's no stage to prop yourself on, because that's where I look. 
That's the aisle that I go down to to see where my people are at, inside a person. He says, you buy those garments and you won't be ashamed of your nakedness. He goes on to say, buy salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So that we may see. We're the most educated. We got a medical center here. We got, a, we got schooling. Doesn't that sound like America? You can be the most educated man or woman in the world and the most foolish when you deny the Lord of life, the creator, the beginning of creation. The church was never meant, and I value education, but the church does not succeed with just PhDs. The church succeeds with people that can clean their perspective of the old man inside of them and embrace the new man of Jesus Christ in them to become more fervent, more zealous, more bold, more unashamed disciples of Jesus Christ. That's where the church succeeds. Not in your master's degree. Not in your education, not in your accolades. Educated is good, but it is a golden idol in our culture and within our society, within the church. Give me a brother, give me a sister that would dedicate their time to seeking God, praying to God, seeking what all that Jesus can give over 10 to 15 to whatever 100 seminary students that only keep their head in the books and they don't believe that Jesus is with them, moving with them. And this is a word of encouragement. I don't care who you are, your background. I don't care what what accolades you have or don't have. You have Jesus. You have the spirit of God. He gives you spiritual gifts. You have the body in which to use them. That is your Ph.D. He knows your name. If you want, if you have unblinded eyes by the word of God that cleans our perspective, you have everything you need to be used by God. This is in contrast to the church. I believe it. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't have it noted here. Uh, Smyrna, who was poor and yet rich. He said, you're poor. but You're so rich. Don't you want Jesus to say that about us? Irregardless of bank account. You're poor, but man, I love you so much. You're so rich. The things you buy, they matter to me. The things you do when no one's around and when people are around, they matter to me. Your character and the way that you wash your mind and value God's word over every other word is what matters to me because your perspective is getting cleaned in the holy word of God. That is what matters to Jesus, and he says it right here. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve the ointment, God's word, to anoint your eyes so that you can see culture, so that you can see God, so that you can see eternity, so that you can see the temporary the way I see it, is what Jesus said. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline So be zealous and repent. So let me just pause right here. If you thought about those three categories, and this is for us as individuals, but it's also for us as a church. I've had a privilege to visit a lot of different churches as I've, whether it's ministry through music or preaching, and you get to know a lot of great brothers and sisters, a lot of churches around the country. And you'll, you'll note strengths that churches are marked by. 
Sometimes the strength of the church is you just sense that people really take the weight of the Lord and his holy word and holy living very seriously. And it's a strength. And yet sometimes they get kind of clammed up in their little world and they never go out and use their gifts. So they never do the works outside of the body, evangelism or salt and light in the culture, whatever have you. And then you go to another church body and there's typically other strengths, right? There's a lot of work outside. Their witness is strong, but they're very thin as far as regarding God as holy, as far as going into the depth of the word. So they're sharing Christ with many people, but the church is very shallow. Once again, they have strengths and weaknesses. What we see here is that Jesus wants us to buy both individually and as a body, things that matter to him, works that matter to him. And I guess I ask ourselves here at Edgewater, would we buy gold that is refined by fire in the sense of, are we sacrificing? In America, sometimes we can scoop by really easily. I know that we all go through trials, right? Everybody has trials, but it's easy in a country like this that's saying comparison to countries that are under severe persecution, where sometimes they don't have a chance to say, uh, man, yeah, let, let me coast the next two weeks. No, <laughs> they can't do that. They can't just coast in the Lord because the intense mockery of persecution upon their testimony. What you see is churches that produce things that Jesus loved. Sometimes here in America, though, we have it a little bit harder in this sense. Harder, I use specifically, because we often can have options. How bold do I want to be in Christ? How hard do I want to go after seeking the Lord? How open do I want to be in a culture that's kind of like, ah, you can say it, you cannot say it, why don't we just scoot by? And it's kind of like we're in candy land sometimes in America. Well, see, buying takes intentionality. Here's just a side note. You can intentionally feel the sacrifice of walking out the gospel life if you start pouring into other people's lives. So no matter if you're in a persecuted area or you're in an area of the world that um is, is like ours where it's not persecuted and there's a little bit more leeway to live boldly in Christ to kind of fall under the nominal radar of Christianity, right? He's saying be intentional. If you're about living for me, do the works that I value. One of those I would say here is do gospel ministry. You don't need a Ph.D. Disciple somebody. Get into a small group and let that small group be a launching pad to evangelize. Go sense, go provoke, go do the works of Jesus and you will feel the refining fire. Edgewater, are, we, are you hearing me? Am I being clear here? You, we have options when we start this week. And we walk with the Lord. It's not like somebody's on our door saying, declare Jesus or not, or don't declare him. And I'm going to take your family. At this point, it's not like that. And so we can wake up on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and live very nominally. We can live very blase. We can just do everything that the rest of our culture is doing. But when you take the step into intentional gospel ministry, ministering Jesus Christ to people, 
starting the miracle leagues, starting the safe places, getting engaged at the local high, uh, local schools, pouring into young people in our congregation, helping somebody in need in the name of Jesus. Those kind of things, you will start to feel the refining fire, not to mention it will accompany spiritual warfare. But what God will say is, I love that. Because you're created to be dependent on Jesus Christ and you're also created to give out. And you'll be refined through it. The second thing is some of us just shirk accountability. We don't want to know. We don't want to let anybody know the skeletons in our, our closets. And so our garments are stained. Properly. And properly choose who you need to confess to. Get the skeletons out the closet, the, the habitual sin that is undermining your power in Jesus Christ. Let grace wash those skeletons away and experience a new freedom in Christ. And that's what he's talking about here with the garments. I see your life. I see your heart. Let my grace go in there and wash them all clean. That's what he wants. That's what he values. So Edgewater, know this. They're kind of like ice cubes. If we all come in cold, we're going to help the place get cold. If we come in all lukewarm and we approach our life lukewarm, this is going to be a lukewarm church. We affect each other. Those who are confessing and zealous to repent, those who are experiencing the fire of the Lord refining their character, are going to impact everybody else in this body. We understand this, right? Our temperature is not just made up as us as individuals, but it really matters individually. Does this make sense? Your week matters what you bring into here Sunday. My week matters how I've interacted with Jesus matters with then how I see Joey or anybody else. And that's not my words. This is Jesus's words. This is how he assesses us. And the last thing is this. Um, oh, just one thing. Some of us are so paralyzed because we're shamed. We're so paralyzed because we're ashamed. Let grace wash that away. Confess, repent. Let God's grace show it's much deeper than your skeletons. Get out of that place of being ashamed and watch how God will use you. Watch how God will not only minister to you, but how that grace will minister out. And then salve to anoint your eyes. A specific word that came onto my mind this week is we live in a, a, an age that is so digitally driven there are worldviews attacking us all the time what are we washing our perspective with is the word of god so valued in your life that you give god the time to use the word of god to wash and renew your mind you have a church here that was called blind, and yet they were the most educated and all these things. Is Netflix teaching you how to be a, a Christian? Let's compare the time, because time matters. I asked myself these questions. Once again, not to, it's all in balance, right? But there, there is a, where you sow, you will reap, right? What you value will come out where what you instill and invest into your heart will be the words that come out of your mouth. And we live in an age that everybody wants to talk to you. Can you give me your ear? Can you give me your dollar? Can you give me your ear? 
Can you give me your dollar? And yet all of these churches said, he who has a what? An ear. Listen what the Spirit is saying to the churches. You want Edgewater to be different? You want our church to be different and have a holy witness in this community? Be so vastly different than the culture and the neighborhood we live in? Apply each day the word of God to your mind. Speak about it in your house. Speak about it with your kids. Don't just talk about the Cubs or the Sox or the Bulls. Talk about the word of God. Make Jesus the most famous topic in your conversations. Talk about what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. Talking about how he's propelling you. Talk about Jesus. Make him the main headline. And that's going to pour over fire. That's going to pour over zealousness. It's going to pour over repentance and empowerment into this church here at Edgewater. And we know the difference when we don't. We know the difference. Sorry. We know the difference when we're not filled up with Christ's word. We go to a lukewarm future place. I want to end with this. Uh, We are designed for devotion and delight. Think of how sweet and how intimate Jesus's words are here. How vulnerable in some ways to us. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I have also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Up until this point, you might have thought, man, Jesus just came with this stick to beat out all the garbage in us, right? Well, he came with tough love here, but look at the tenderness here. What does Jesus ultimately desire in our life that we would delight and dine with him? How many of y'all know that fellowship with Jesus fuels us for mission? You can't disattach sitting down and eating with Jesus, talking with Jesus, letting Jesus talk to you if you want to be on mission. He's so intimate here. He's so persistent. Hey, open up. Open up. Can I eat with you? Knocking. Not just for the day of salvation. Not for when I was just 15 years old. But now that I'm 35 year old, two decades in, walking with Jesus, and he's like, come on. Let me in deeper. Let me set the table. Let me feed you. Let me talk to you. Let me counsel you. Right? This is a judge here, but it's also a very intimate friend. It's also a very intimate counselor. This is who Jesus is. Today, maybe some of you came in afraid to come back to Jesus. That's not who you see here. What's the turning point here? Be zealous and repent. Man, just admit you're wrong. Jesus just tells us, man, just admit that you're wrong. And then let me show you my very sweet side. Let me dine with you. Let me make you the new creation that I made you to be. But we got to get past this. You can't keep struggling with me in the water and trying to beat me back. You got to rest in me. And the reward is that you rest in him on a day-to-day basis. You persevere in the faith. God keeps you, and he'll grant you a reward. What is the reward? You're going to sit down with me with God the Father. Now picture that. Picture hope. Picture eternity. How many of y'all want to sit down with God the Father and Jesus? That's a place where I want to sit when it's all said and done. And let that fuel your hope. Let that fuel our hope. 
couple of reflection questions that I just want to leave us with. Christian, those who follow Christ, those who say with their lips, man, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I follow him. He saved me. How do you know when you are drifting from dependence on Jesus? Have you learned yourself yet? How do you know when you're starting to depend on yourself and not him? Journal it down. Take note of it. Tell it to a brother or sister. My, my, my mom told me when I was 18 years old, and I was really struggling with a, a lot of things, man, trying to walk out my faith in Christ. And I had some real struggles, some real sin struggles that I was so frustrated with. And one of the best counsels she gave me is identify your ruts. Identify where your, your wheel falls into the rut and you get stuck. Identify the patterns in your life. The things that bait you toward soiling your garments or the things, the, the, the way you think that you start to feel yourself creep into depression or whatever the struggle is, identify your ruts. Specifically here, identify when you're starting to depend more on yourself than on God. Know those things so you can avoid those things, so you can pray against those things. So as Paul told the Ephesians that you don't just try to work in your flesh, but you war in the spirit against those things. Secondly, Christian, how do you know when you're delighting in Jesus? How do you know when you've had a good day in Jesus? All days are good because Jesus is good in that sense positionally. We are covered by his righteousness, his grace. But if I went up to you and said, man, how was your week going? And you really had the time to actually respond beyond pastor. Oh, yeah, good, brother. Yeah, it's going good. But really, if you got real with me or someone else, how would you know when you're like, man, that week I felt alive in God? What marked it? I asked uh, my wife this last night. I said, man, how do you know when you're dependent on yourself more than God? And how do you know when you're delighting God? She said, man, I can tell by two things. The fruit of the flesh. That's when I know I'm dependent on myself. I'm hostile. I'm angry. I'm worrisome. I'm right. And then how do you know when you're delighting God in God It's the fruit of the spirit? And it gets more complex than that. I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but it is kind of a marker. Like if you looked and you said, man, the last four days, have I been patient? Nah, man, I've been just trying to get in somebody's throat. Right. Well, it probably marks the time for you to be zealous and repent. You don't got to wave. Some do some ceremony to repent. Just talk to the Lord. Admit you're wrong. Ask him for him to fill you with your fruit and then experience the joy of him. All right. I just want to pause here because I don't want to assume. This is talking to the church, people that say that they are following the Lord. But I do ask this. Man, do you know this Jesus? This is the real Jesus here. He wants to talk with you, dine with you, love you. For you to delight in him. He wants to take your sins away. He paid for those at the cross. He doesn't want you struggling, drowning in the sea of life. Drowning in the sea of the afterlife of condemnation and hell. He wants to save you. I ask with open ears. If you've never allowed yourself to say, God, I cannot do this. It's like, I confess I'm wrong. My whole life is filled with filth. Be my savior. Be my lifeguard. Be, come and dine with me. Like Zacchaeus, who had all the sins. He was a wretched tax collector. He cheated people. He finally said, Jesus, I need you to come into my home. 
and all the money and all, it doesn't replace. I need Jesus. If Jesus is talking you this morning and saying, come, be forgiven. No new life in me. Know your creator. I am your creator. I design you. I designed you to delight in me. I designed you to be forgiven for me. That's why I did everything on the cross. That's why I rose again from the grave. And that's why I still am calling people today. Don't delay. Respond. Open the door. Open the door. He loves when people open the door and say, Jesus, here I am. Take me. Let's pray. Jesus, we sense our need for you this morning. I sense my need for you this morning, God. Wake us up, God, if we don't sense our need for you this week, our need for you right now, God. Because that's a very dangerous place, Lord. I pray, Father God, for those who feel that they are so self-sufficient in their walk right now, so self-sufficient in their life right now, would you show them their need? I, I pray, Father God, for those who came very broken and in need of a Savior, in need of Jesus to take their life. I pray that they would allow themselves to receive everything that you offer them, life and forgiveness and new identity and eternal life. I pray for us as a body here at Edgewater that we would do the works that please you, that we, we would not be afraid of steps of faith because of finance, steps of faith because it will make us boldly stick out in our neighborhood. Steps of faith because it will make us boldly stick out perhaps in our schools, amongst our friends. Perhaps we might lose friends because we're now walking with Jesus. I pray if you drew people here this morning, God, you know the needs of the heart, God. And I pray you would draw all of us in the way that we need to be drawn to you, would draw us to you, Lord God. We are not self-sufficient, God. We need you. We want to delight in you. We thank you for your great love for us, God, your faithfulness to us, God. In your name we pray. Amen.